ask you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we are going to look at verses 67 through 80, which is the prophecy of Zacharias. Very often we can find our looks into these early chapters of the Gospel of Luke to the Christmas season, and we do that to our own peril. These are great chapters that deserve our attention all the time, not just in a few short weeks of the year. Before we get into this, I want to remind you that there is an adversary to all truth. And that adversary has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. But there is one. His name is Jesus Christ, of whom Zechariah prophesies here, even as he's prophesying of the birth of his own son. And this one has come to defeat the adversary. He has overcome. He has worked for us a perfect salvation. He has declared his love openly. He invites you into himself. And so I pray as we go through this prophecy of Zacharias, this priest, that the Lord would make himself known and would receive the praise and honor for it. Would you read these verses with me? We're in Luke chapter 1, going to begin in verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, now he's speaking to his own son here, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit And was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. We ask your great blessing on it. Open it to our understanding. Do so in a way that you will receive the praise and glory. We ask it on the merits of Christ and in his name. Amen. Let me do just a little bit of work with you to... Remind us all who Zacharias is and 
the great blessing of God with which he found himself living. Chapter 1 just tells us that there was in the days of Herod a certain priest named Zacharias. He was unlike any of the other priests. He was not notable. Outside of his being singled out during this season of the year to serve in the priesthood, and as he served, you'll remember as you read through chapter 1 that an angel appeared to him and revealed to him that he would, in his old age, along with his wife, have a son. The Lord had heard him. No doubt, Zacharias had for a long time beseeched the Lord for a child. He had some trouble understanding what the angel said. There was some doubt in his mind, in his heart. He knew how old he was. He knew how old his wife was. And so he was struck mute until the birth of his son and the naming of his son. But I want you to remember, just in rehearsing these things with you, what great blessings Zacharias was living under, even though he was struck mute. What great blessing of God resided upon him to be a priest, to be the father of the forerunner of the Messiah, to be the father of John the Baptist. And this child given to him in old age. Wouldn't it make sense for Zacharias to come before God in a prophecy of sorts like he does here? And thank God for all of the individual blessings that he had poured out upon him. And perhaps he did that. The Spirit of God did not record those things for us. But I could understand if he had done that. But I want you to see in this first verse, 68, that the blessing, the desire of Zacharias' heart for the Lord God of Israel to be blessed, and that is to receive the honor and praise that is due him. That desire is born not from any blessing given to him as an individual. That desire stems from the greatness of the promise or covenant that God has kept in sending a Messiah and even in sending the one who would come in the likeness of Elijah to cry out before the Messiah's birth and before his ministry especially. Before his ministry especially. Zacharias is blessing God because of his covenant promise being kept. Now, there is one thing that you can take to be absolutely certain and to be always true. God will keep his word. Men will fail you. The best of men will fail you. The best of men will disappoint you when they say they will do something for you. And then because they lack the ability, it may have been a great and worthy desire in their heart, but we all lack the ability to make things happen sometimes. Not so with God. Zacharias is pointing back to something way back in the beginning of the revelation of God in Genesis chapter 3. We don't have to go far before we see God promise a Messiah in the third chapter of Genesis. But then that promise becomes more and more specific, even as you read the beginning chapters of the Scripture, which tells us 
We rightly interpret the scripture when we see it as a whole, not as subdivided into different sections with different points and purposes, but all telling one central story, and that is what God has done for the redemption of his people through sending a Messiah. So Zacharias is blessing God because he has kept his promise. He always will. That's the foundation upon which this prophecy is uttered. But I want to speak just a little more of how Zacharias is calling for blessing upon the Lord, for the honor given to the Lord based upon his covenant keeping to an entire people. To those whom he has loved, we say, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. I don't know that we understand fully the tremendous truth in those few words. If God had not set his affection on you, you would refuse him. But he's loved you, and he has gone to great lengths. Some of that we're going to see here this morning to send one to redeem you from your sin. I think we do well to make a distinction here before we go on any further. The distinction that I want to make is between what we call common grace and saving grace. Every person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, is a recipient of God's common grace. The fact that you were born and the fact that your life has been sustained the fact that you have had food to eat, water to drink, and that there have been some blessings given to you in your life. Perhaps you have a spouse. Perhaps you have children. Perhaps you have great natural abilities, gifts, talents. You can churn out an enormous amount of work. All of these things are gifts of God's common grace to you. And in that sense, we all possess some measure of common grace. But saving grace is something altogether different. It's not enjoyed by all. It's enjoyed by those who come to faith in Christ. It's very particular. It's very unique in that way. God setting his affection upon you and then in time by his spirit through the scriptures or the means that he uses drawing you into himself. That's one of the things that Jesus makes very clear. No man can come to the Father unless I draw him. And there's, there are means that God uses to draw to, to himself. This is the beginnings of particular or redeeming, saving, or even termed as electing grace. We saw last week where Paul said to the Thessalonians, Brethren, I know your election of God because of the way that grace has made such an entrance to you, because of the, the champion of the gospel amongst you. It has converted you. You turn to God from idols to serve him. And it is, regard, it is in particular regard to this saving or electing grace of God that Zacharias' prophecy stems. God has made a way for you to be saved. God has made a way for everything to be made right. I can't convince you that things are wrong, only the Spirit of God can convince you of that. I can declare to you what the Scripture says, and I will as we go through. 
Let's continue with what Zacharias says here. I want you to, to notice in verse 68 the reason that he is blessing the Lord and calling for the Lord to be blessed is because he has visited and redeemed his people. He singles him out here and calls him the Lord God of Israel. But he is not the God of Israel only. He is the God of us all. Israel has a special place in the economy of God. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 3. What advantage then does the Jew have? He says much in every way. To them were committed the oracles of God. He says in Romans chapter 9, it is to Israel to whom the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, all of these things pertain to them. But then yet we know the entirety of the scriptures that God has engrafted Gentiles into that tree. So that we too have become the beneficiaries of these great promises made in the old covenant and that are kept and fulfilled in the new Notice these two words in verse 68. They take us all the way back. Those of you who know your Bibles, those of you who have read Exodus chapter 3, it takes you all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when he says he has visited his people. You remember the story of the Old Testament people of God, how they were enslaved in Egypt. And at a certain point in time, God revealed himself to Moses and he said, go and Tell my people that I am about to deliver them out of Egypt. And he says there very specifically the same word. I have visited my people. But this is a visitation with great intention. This visitation was with intention to deliver. In Exodus chapter 3, there's no way we can deny that. The cry of the people had come up before God. He had heard them, he visited them, and he provided a savior of sorts in the man Moses. Moses would be the one to speak for God. He would be the one to whom God would deliver the oracles of God, the commandments of God. He would be the one that God would use to deliver an enslaved people out of their slavery so that they could worship him. You remember Moses' plea to Pharaoh over and over again. Let us go so that we may go worship. We may go serve the Lord our God. It's, it's very interesting. By the time we finish the prophecy of Zacharias here, the, the correlation and the parallels with the exodus out of Egypt. So this visitation had a great intention to deliver. But I want you to see in this first verse that visitation is such as this always comes at a cost. Always has a cost. That's why he attaches to it the word redeemed. He has visited and redeemed his people. Basically, the word redeemed to me means to be purchased at a price. Salvation has come at a great cost to the Savior. But this glorious truth also stands. Salvation comes at no cost to the saved. 
You see the difference? Cost Jesus everything, costs you nothing. Cost him the giving of his life's blood. Even as we read that great passage out of Philippians chapter 2 this morning, he set aside every privilege and right that he had as being the eternal son of God. Now think about that for just a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ set everything aside to enter into this creation and accomplish redemption. It cost him everything. It cost you nothing. That's why the prophet Isaiah says, come, without money, without price, you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't do enough good things, but you can receive it, New Testament language, by faith. Through belief. As the Spirit of God brings conviction and convinces you of the truth of these things, and I'll admit very, very freely that that's a great mystery. As much as I would like to be able through, through choice words and, and delivery and all of those kinds of things, you know by now I can't do that, nor can anyone else. But the Lord takes these words that accord with Scripture and He mysteriously uses them to create faith where there once was none. Now we believe when we once didn't. Now we believe the truth about Christ when once we denied it vehemently. We have those examples in Scripture all over, and I keep bringing us back to Saul of Tarsus because that's the most notable, right? Saul of Tarsus was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But the Lord so arrested and intervened in his life and brought him to faith and used him mightily. Mysterious. Unexplainable. What did Saul of Tarsus do to merit it, to deserve it? Nothing. But yet he received everything. Visitation with intention to save has come at a great cost, but yet is free to you. Let me say that again. Visitation with intention to save or deliver has come at a great cost, and yet it's free to you. We call it free grace. You can't earn it. This is what Zechariah is prophesying. This is why he is so intent on the Lord God of Israel being blessed. And notice in verse 69, he is giving us more Old Testament language when he says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now let's deal with that second part first. Zacharias is being very specific. He does not want to confuse John the Baptist, his own son, with Jesus the Messiah. That's why he says that this salvation is coming out of the house of his servant David. In fulfillment of the prophecy given to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, Zechariah is saying, don't confuse things. The son born to me is only the forerunner. The son born to Mary, who is conceived in her of the Holy Spirit, is the horn of salvation. So why this language? We don't speak in these terms anymore. Why does Zacharias call Christ a horn of salvation? Well, a, a horn 
on an animal refers to its strength. Let me think of some of the some of the largest animals that on earth have horns, right? Know how to use them, inflict great damage and harm with them. Speaks to their ability. Speaks to their might, their strength. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Verse 70 says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. In other words, Zacharias is saying, this is not a new thing. This is not something unique to me or, or the words that I am delivering to you. This is something that God has spoken through the mouth of his prophets since the world began. Perhaps there's a bit of hyperbole there, but Zacharias is making his point. This accords to scripture from beginning to end. Then we get very specific. And here's where we have to ask the question, what type of salvation did Zacharias have in mind? Was it a temporal salvation from oppression of the Roman government? You remember that even the disciples were looking for that kind of deliverance. In Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascends back into glory, what do they ask him? Is it at this time that you're going to deliver the kingdom? Are you finally going to set us free from this Roman tyranny? And Jesus just dismisses that question altogether. But yet, how many of us ask the same question? How many of us read these words in the same way? So what is the enemy in verse 71? Are the enemies, plural, that Zacharias is prophesying of, that we should be saved from our enemies? Even as you continue reading this prophecy, it gets very specific at the end, but just suffice it to say for now, the enemies that Zacharias is, has in mind and in view here, primarily the enemy of sin and all of the tentacles of sin that have come down into the life of those who are living in a fallen world as fallen people. You go back to Matthew chapter 1, when the angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall do what? Deliver his people from Roman tyranny? No. He shall save his people from their sin. That was the oppression. That was the greatest enemy. The enemy of enslaving sin, of which Jesus has come to completely break the chains, release the fetters, call us to, to light out of darkness. Zacharias is saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel that we should be saved from our enemies, the, the enemy of sin, which manifests itself in the world, the flesh, and the devil, have made us the enemies of God. You can't read the epistle of Paul to the Romans without noticing the enmity that he keeps bringing up. The enmity both between the Jew and the Gentile in their relation to God. Sin has made us enemies of God. However, God has defeated our enemy. He has defeated our greatest enemies. 
to make peace between himself and us. There's no way that we as fallen creatures could have ever authored a way of peace between ourselves and a holy God. Now we understand why Zacharias is saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. He's done for us what we could never do. We should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And what did God swear to Abraham? He's told Abraham in Genesis 12, he reiterated it in Genesis 22, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How so? Because the Messiah would come. Ultimately, the Messiah would make an entrance and an appearance. And what faith these old covenant people had looking forward to the coming of this Messiah. It's no wonder when we read Hebrews chapter 11, all of these Old Testament names are mentioned and they are categorized as being the greatest of the faithful. You realize what a privileged position we find ourselves in. We're looking back on the things that Jesus accomplished. We have them recorded for us in great detail. The old covenant people of God were looking forward and they were viewing things through eyes of faith. Taking God at his word. When he said way back in Genesis 3, there will be a seed from the woman who will come and crush the head of this serpent. And so they lived continually awaiting and looking for by faith the coming of this head-crushing Savior. Notice the correlation in verses 72 and 3 of the performing of mercy and the remembering of His covenant. I've said already God is forever faithful to His word, to His covenant. The practical outworking of that is the performance of His mercy making it happen, performing these things. More on the word mercy a little later when we get down to the end. But notice verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Again, correlation between the exodus out of Egypt, God delivered them through great enemies to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey where they could, if they had had a heart to obey the Lord in every detail, they would have had every ability to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. So Zacharias is here saying, when he speaks of being delivered from the enemy and serving without fear and holiness and righteousness all the days of our life, the correlation is made here. The greatness of this salvation, God has delivered us from our enemy into the promised land into Canaan, his own country, where he provides, where we reap tremendous benefit of his provision. 
But I want you to notice that verse 74 and 5, the last of 74 and verse 75, really could be the purpose statement of this prophecy. Why did God do these things? Why did he deliver us from great enemies? Why is he keeping his covenant? Why has he delivered us from the hands of those who hate us? Well, here's the reason. So that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. That's why. Now he interjects here in verse 76. Speaking of his own son, John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called prophet of the highest, the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. How so? By the remission of their sins. That's why we can go back and say that the great enemy spoken of is the enemy of sin. By the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God. I want to, I want to talk about this phrase for just a moment. The phrase tender mercy of our God is oftentimes translated as bowels of mercy. What does that mean? I'm almost positive none of us speak in those terms anymore. But what it means is from the very depth of who God is. Take all of his attributes, all of his characteristics, and at the bottom of those, what we find are the bowels of his mercy. And what Zacharias is saying is that God has kept his covenant and know this, that God made a covenant in the first place to be kept because of his compassion, because of his tenderness. Through the tender mercy of our God, Christ came because of the mercy of God Extended. But we have to stop right here and notice what Zacharias says. We have to love the theology of Zacharias. He understood, as we understand, mercy has a cost. He's already said it, but he repeats it in a different way. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring. Almost every one of your Bibles is going to have a notation here referring in some way or another. The day spring referring to the Messiah, the coming of Christ. So Zacharias is, is putting these things together and saying the tender mercy of God again comes at great expense. The day spring from on high has visited us. 
What has he done? What did this visitation do? Remember how we phrased it earlier? This is a visitation with the intention to deliver. This is a performance of mercy. And it's done in remembrance of a holy covenant. And so verse 79 says, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Now let me speak very, in a very sober way with you. The scripture declares that those who are outside of Christ are sitting in darkness. That's why Jesus referred to himself and the scripture refers to Christ as the light of the world. He has come to, to shed light and truth through the gospel of his salvation to those who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. What a sobering phrase. Every person in the room, youngest to oldest, physically is sitting in the shadow of death. Death will be here for me and for you, barring the return of Christ in short order. No one in the room is going to be the first that lives forever. But there is something far more tragic than the fact that each one of us are going to physically die. The shadow of death that Zacharias is speaking of here is not the shadow of a physical death. It's the shadow of a spiritual death. The second death. The scripture confines all under sin. Confines all under deadness and sin. Walking in the darkness of sin. But enter Jesus. The light of the world. We, used to, we sing an old song sometimes. I used to love to hear Brother Mike sing it. The light of the world is Jesus. This is what the babe born of Mary has come to do. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Make no mistake. Zacharias does not have in mind world peace. He has in mind peace between you God, as God's creation and God himself. There is no peace to be found with God outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to what I, what I talked about earlier. The distinction between common grace and saving grace. Common grace, though it comes from God, it's a blessing of God, will very often be used by the adversary of all truth to lull you to sleep. 
The fact that you have been born, and some of you into a great family, have had great blessings poured out upon you. Sometimes the adversary of all truth will use this common grace of God to usher you right on in to a spiritual death. Take you there on a seeming bed of flowery ease. Don't fall prey. Don't fall prey to it. There is a day appointed for man once to die, Scripture says, and after that, the judgment. Where you will be judged according to your works, your deeds. And if you don't have an advocate there for you on that day, speaking on your behalf, pleading his own wounds, showing that he has shed his own blood, having dressed you in his own righteousness, if you're not found there in him on that day, then you will be forever lost. Darkness will overshadow you. The shadow of death will swallow you up. And it will forever be too late. That's bad news. I understand that. Sobering. Let me give you good news. The good news is that doesn't have to be true for anyone. You can choose it for yourself if you wish. You can reject. You can spurn. And even as I say that, I'm I'm aware of the conquering love of a Savior. But the Scriptures do reveal that mankind has a responsibility before the Lord. So it makes me want to ask you the question of the prophet in the Old Testament. Why would you die? Why would you? And he's not referring to there again a physical death. He wasn't ignorant of the fact that everyone is physically going to die. He's asking the question, why would you die in a spiritual sense? The offer, salvation. Why would you? The answer that most, the the way to answer that question that most people won't admit to is pride. Stubborn pride. And unwillingness. So my prayer for everyone is that the Lord would guide your feet into the way of peace. And move you from the realm of only having received the common grace of God into the realm where you have experienced the saving grace of God. To perform this mercy for you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this prophecy of Zacharias. Lord, obviously so much more could be said concerning it, but 
I pray you would take this feeble attempt to preach it and use it for your own glory. Use it for the salvation of all in this room. Lord, we pray that you would do that that saving work. Lord, that you would intervene in the course of everyone present. That you would do it in a way that you receive the praise. We are agreeing with Zacharias this morning that blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Lord, you have kept your covenant promise to send a Messiah. You have kept your promise of redemption. And Lord, we know that you will keep it until the end. Lord, I pray that you would be well pleased to draw men unto yourself. That you would be well pleased to bless in that way. We ask it in Christ's name.